Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar.com. This podcast is brought to you by Oppenheimer Funds. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends is a podcast from Oppenheimer Funds that explores the trends reshaping the global economy. Subscribe to Megatrends wherever you listen. This week on the podcast, we are celebrating Morningstar's 35th anniversary with a roundtable discussion between founder and executive chairman Joe Mansueto, Morningstar Managing Director Don Phillips, and Morningstar CEO Kadal Kapoor about Morningstar's past, present, and future. Stay tuned after the discussion for a brief video about what it means to us to empower investor success. So, Joe, we're getting together because 35 years ago you had a little idea, and we're going to talk about how you took that little idea and made it into what Morningstar is today. And, Don, we're going to focus a lot, too, on the research side and how pivotal that's been because you had such a strong hand in shaping that and the outcomes that many investors had. So I'm looking forward to this conversation because I think not only does it allow us to reflect, but also to look ahead. So, Joe... How did you come up with the name Morningstar? So when I was looking to name the company, um, I remembered a book that I read as a first-year student at the University of Chicago, Walden by Thoreau. Mm -hmm. And uh, I often tell the story of when I, I first read that. It was my first quarter at uh, the U of C. And I read this very powerful book, and the conclusion of Walden is very powerful. And I'm wondering, how is Thoreau going to end this book? And so I'm up on the fourth floor of Regenstein Library at the University of Chicago, and I get to that last line, the sun is but a morning star. And I still remember reading that line, pausing, putting the book down on my lap, and I look out over the quads, and the snow is falling. It's the end of the quarter. And I think to myself, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> and I had to think about it, you know, for a bit. And, you know, it means, you know, something that's been around as long as the sun is still in its infancy. It's about rebirth. It's a very positive statement. But that line stuck with me. And yeah, yeah. that book meant a lot to me. And it was all about independence, thrift, self-reliance. And those were all great qualities for a company to embody. And so when I was thinking of a name, I really liked those qualities. And so the name harkens back to Walden, that last line. Uh, and it just had a very positive, optimistic sound to, to it, Morningstar. They also have great qualities for investors in some ways when you sort of think about that angle. Yeah, the independence, yeah. self-reliance, yeah, yeah. think for yourself, yeah. march to your own drummer. Yeah, yeah. And so from that, you also created what is now a ubiquitous logo. And so what's the connection between the naming of Morningstar and the creation of the logo? Well, after having a company, you need a, a logo. <laughs> and so uh, I didn't know a lot about design. And so I did research, and I would you know, look at various designers who were out there, talk to a lot of people. And I read a book mm -hmm. that really resonated with me. It was by Paul Rand called A Designer's Art. And I recommend this book to you if you have not read it. Uh, and Paul, as you may know, designed the IBM logo, the old UPS logo with the package, the Westinghouse logo, and he approached design. What I liked about the book, he approached design from a fine arts perspective. A lot of designers came out of, brand uh, identity designers came out of the marketing advertising world. And it wasn't, it was more of a trade. Yeah, yeah. But Paul Rand came at it from this fine arts perspective. 
And so it took me a while to uh, track him down. The first person I called in New York, when I asked how do I get a hold of Paul Rand, said, oh, he died a number of years ago. <laughs> and so I persevered, and I finally found him in Weston, Connecticut. And I called him up and said I admired his work. I wanted to have him design the Morningstar logo. And he, you know, was one-man band. There was no, you know, assistant or anything. He just, you know, I'm very busy, you know, call me back in a month. And, and I, died, I, I died 10 years ago. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> he didn't mention that. It almost sounded like he was <laughs> not far away. Uh, but he, uh, you know, so he's very gruff. And I thought it was kind of odd customer service. Uh, but I called him back in a few weeks, and I got the same treatment. Then he said, send me a letter. And... Uh, so I wrote him a long letter how important this company was to me. I admired his work. I really wanted him to, to uh, create our logo. And uh, I called him back after I sent the letter and still, oh, I'm too busy, too busy. And then I said, what if I fly out and meet with you? And then he changed 180 degrees. Huh. And he later told me that made all the difference, the willingness to fly out. He says he gets calls all the time from wanting, people wanting him to design their logos. And he only did a couple projects a year. So he's very selective in who he yeah. took on. And so I remember flying out there. It was Super Bowl Sunday uh, in January, and it was a bitter cold day, and I stayed at the White Plains New York Hotel. The next morning, I drove out to Weston, Connecticut, and I spent a wonderful morning with Paul um, in his home. He, has a, he had a beautiful home in Weston, floor-to-ceiling glass, facing a wooded lot, and you know, it was snow on the ground. And uh, his wife would come in often and fill up our coffee. And it was a surprising morning. I didn't know what he would want to talk about, uh, but he just wanted to talk about art. And he showed me all the art in his home, talked about uh, design, uh, what idiots the people at IBM were, and how they <laughs> mismanaged the whole design program there. Uh, he designed a logo for Ford that didn't get accepted because the wife of the chairman didn't like it. Oh, and, uh, but he had he, amazing anecdotes. He was a great storyteller in addition to design. And so um, I'm wondering, when is he going to start to ask me about Morningstar? And so, um, you know, towards the end of the conversation, it was around lunchtime, and he said, well, Morningstar, um, you've got a, an M and an S and an R and a T. He said, you know, I'll call you when I finish. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I said, okay, that's fantastic. Um, I just have two requests, Paul. You know, the, uh, you know, the first request is that I want the logo and the name to be one thing, like Coca-Cola. I don't want a mark plus uh, uh, the name. Mm -hmm. I regret that now, but in uh, any case, that's what I wanted. Um, and he started kind of hemmed and hawed and said, oh, okay. And then the second thing uh, I want to ask you is that you've done all this great work, IBM, all these fantastic uh, companies. You worked with Steve Jobs with the next logo, and they're all terrific, but this company is really, really important to me, Paul, and I really want you to promise me you'll do your best work ever. You know, I kind of growled about that. And then, uh, <laughs> uh, and so then we're walking out, and he said, okay, I'll call you when I'm done. And then we're walking out to my car, and uh, I think I should ask him how much this is gonna cost. I have no idea, I'm a scrappy young entrepreneur. So I said, Paul, what I hate I to ask the great artist, you know, but how much will this cost? And he kind of looked up at me and he said, what are your revenues? And I said, they're a million dollars. He said, that'll be 50,000 half up front. <laughs> and I said, fine, you know, and I knew instantly, you know, you amortize that over a period of time. What a bargain. What a bargain. Yeah. 
And so uh, I fly back to Chicago, and I wait, and I wait, and I wait. And I know from reading his book, A Designer's Art, he gives advice to clients. Don't bother, bother the artist. <laughs> Let the artist walk, you know, work. And so I was hesitant about calling him up, and our head of marketing was saying, hey, we're designing a catalog. We need that identity. And so finally, I just couldn't take it. After about six weeks, I called him, and I said, Paul, how's it coming? He said, oh, I'm glad you called, Joe. You know, I've just solved the, the logo. I've just finished it yesterday. I went down a wrong path. I filled up books with star logos, with Morningstar with a star in it. And he said, then I remembered where the name came from. The sun is but a morning star, and so a rising sun. And as soon as I had the rising sun, I got it like that. And so then, just to wrap up the story, you know, the way he presents his work, you don't go meet with him. He sends you a book, and he kind of walks through kind of where you are currently, and then at the end is a gatefold with the new logo, and it had the logo. And on this book that he handmade, he put a note on it. He said, Joe, here's my best work ever, <laughs> M dash, with 11 letters, Paul Rand. <laughs> well, why do you regret uh, telling him or putting that constraint on him that you wanted the, the word to be the logo? Well, you know what I didn't realize in the digital world that we live in today, a mark separate from the name mm. is very nice to use on, a, say, a smartphone. Yeah, and yeah. When you want to go small, you know, you think of the Apple logo, just that Apple. Yeah, yeah, you can yeah. use it digitally in ways that I didn't dream of back then. Right. But it was mainly for the digital world, yeah. where if you're on the app store, just have a little mark yeah, 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 is yeah. very useful today when it wasn't back then. That's right. That's right. Interesting. So we've got a name. We've yep. got a logo. And now we need to kind of forge our identity a little bit more. And so, Don, what came first, the star rating or the style box? Oh, the, the star rating. Yeah. I mean, the star rating was, uh, Joe had that already in the Mutual Fund Sourcebook, yeah. which he'd been putting out for uh, maybe a year and a half, two years when I joined. Right. Uh, I was joined uh, for the first publication that had sort of analysis in it. It was when we moved to the one-page reviews that went into a binder. And so the star rating was, was already there. And then the style box you know, came about as... Uh, we were always trying to improve the pages. Every time you know, a new issue came out, we wanted it to be better than the one it replaced. So we wanted to have new data, we wanted to have new information, we wanted to uh, have analysis on, on a higher number of the funds each time. So it was sort of this constant improvement. Yeah. And I think from the beginning, that was one of the things that advisors saw in what we were doing. I mean, they might have looked at what we were doing and said, okay, look, this isn't perfect. And if you look at some of the early issues we put out, you know, half the pages had no analysis on them, over half. Um, but people saw that, that, well, one, we were really trying um, and, and that we were constantly getting better. And yeah. people give you a lot of credit if you, if you yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe uh, both of you could just talk about the insights behind the star rating and the style box because mm -hmm. they both seem, well, they are iconic in many ways. And yet they're relatively simple insights into how to take complex topics and present them in a way that's digestible to the average investor or advisor, however you think about it. Yeah, I can start with the, the rating. Um, and so if you went back to the early 80s, um, fund companies marketed themselves really solely on total return. You open up the newspaper, you know, I returned 65% over three years, I returned 125% over five years, and it was return, 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 return. And I knew, having gone to business school, about the concept of risk-adjusted returns. So to really evaluate a return you need to understand the risks that were assumed to achieve that return. Yeah. You may have two funds, as you know, that say each earn 10% per year over a decade, 
but one gets there like that. <laughs> one gets there in a steady stepwise progression. Those are two different funds for two different types of investors. They've earned those returns in different ways. And so I thought I really wanted to highlight kind of the risks as well as the return into one measure. And you know, the idea is you want the most return for a unit of risk, yeah. so a risk-adjusted return. So I wanted to take all those returns and adjust them for risk. So I made a couple tweaks. Um, you know, one tweak is just load adjusting uh, the return. So what the investor actually received. So often the return is whatever it is, but you pay a eight and a half percent load to buy it at the time. Loads were pretty a commission. Very yeah. Were very common. Uh, and then the other tweak was on the risk measure. Uh, the standard academic way of doing it is volatility. And I thought, why, you know, upside volatility is good. You know, you know, let's leave that, take that out, and just the downside volatility, the risk of losing money. So load adjusted on the return, and then uh, the downside volatility measure for the risk. And then I can compute this return for a unit of risk measure, essentially a sharp ratio, right. if you've gone to business school. And so it was a tweak on the, the sharp ratio. And then did that over three, five, and 10 years for the various universes. Uh, and then just created a bell curve. And those in the top 10% got five, and et cetera. Um, and that was really the genesis, but it was the idea of the returns aren't really telling the whole story. Yeah, yeah. And in one measure, just to have a simple rating and then to use stars to make it more accessible. I yeah. still remember the first time I saw stars next to a fund name. It was jarring because I was used to seeing statistics, yeah, working yeah. as an analyst. It was just numbers and charts. But to see stars, which I associated with restaurants or yeah, something, yeah. next to funds, it looked fun. And yeah, it was yeah. like, wow. And it just it was captivating for me. When did you know that you had connected with people because they resonated in such a meaningful way? With the rating? Yeah. Um, you know, it took a while. You know, I think we had to build credibility and you know, I give Don and the team of analysts a ton of credit. You know, they built that credibility, having the voice, you know, the analyst team writing about the rating, explaining it. Yeah. It just, you know, just putting it out there didn't happen overnight. It's like, who's behind that? There's lots of ratings. Right. We weren't the first rating. Don remembers, you know, CDA, other firms would have numerical yeah. ratings, magazines rated. There were all kinds of, Forbes had a rating. Bull uh, and bear market ratings. And, um. Yeah, there was a lot of ratings, but I think the analyst team really gave it credibility yeah, yeah. Uh, in the writing about it, explaining it fund by fund, and it really then connected with people, but that took time. Yeah. What about the Starbucks? Well, that came out of uh, talking to financial planners. Uh, it really came from the ICFP retreat in Rhode Island. Um, and I think one of the key things we did there is we were asked to, to go and present there. So I went out and uh, gave a series of presentations, but I also just hung around um, and talked to the advisors. And it's amazing what, uh, you know, people will tell you the right things to do with your business if you're just smart enough to be quiet and listen to them. Yeah. And so it was hanging out with them and hearing about problems they were having. And uh, I remember one advisor in particular saying, you know, how do, I've got my client, you know, that is dying to buy a gold fund. Um, we only have one fund in their portfolio. And said, so I can see adding a gold fund, but it should be the seventh or eighth fund that we add, not the second. You know, how do we explain that, you know, we haven't covered all of the work in sort of the equity space um, with just one fund? And, and there was a gentleman at uh, the same retreat, uh, uh, Tom Ebright, who worked with uh, Chuck Royce, 
who was doing a presentation where he talked about a four-box matrix. He said, you know, you shouldn't just think of equity managers. You should think of you know, large cap or small cap, and then you should think of growth or value. And it was a very shrewd thing for Tom to do because there were about 2,000 funds out at the time. 1,800 were large cap. Um, so if he gets you to think large and small, he's eliminated the majority of his competition. But then on the small cap, the vast majority of small cap funds were aggressive growth funds, and they were very focused on high growth. And there were really only about you know, 20, 25 small value funds. So Tom whittled down his competition from 1 in 2,000 to 1 in, you know, 1 in 20 just by getting you to think this way. Uh, and then I took it a little further by adding this sort of the blend in the mid cap. And Tom wrote me a real nice note when it came out. He said, Don, that's a better mousetrap. Um, but I think you know, the key thing is that you just both the star rating and the style box took a whole bunch of complex information and made it accessible. Right. And one of the things we said a lot is that if you just have a table of numbers, you know, you're really only going to communicate with a very limited audience. Um, you know, I think it's a classic mistake Wall Street makes. They think they're educating people, and they're, what they're really doing is just befuddling them, right. you know, throwing all these numbers. If you've got a trainer ratio and a sharp ratio and it's, you know, it goes out to six decimal points, you know, it's really hard to... to to get grounded and understand what you're doing. And so we'd say if you have a table of numbers and you can turn it into a paragraph, yeah. you, know, you begin to widen the circle a little bit. But if you can turn that paragraph into a picture, that's where you really begin to impact behavior. Yeah, yeah. And you begin to connect with investors and you get people to, you know, to behave differently. And one of the things I've really come to realize over the years is that you know, if you're in the information business or the investment business, you know, we're really in the behavior modification business, you know, keeping people from doing the things that, uh, that sabotage their returns. And both the, the star rating and the style box took a whole bunch of complex information and made it accessible. You know, how many people can look at a list of holdings and say, oh, gee, these seem to, you know, to be more the names that a value manager would favor versus a growth manager? You know, for the average investor, that was just inside baseball that you just couldn't make sense of. And so the style box, you know, it fit uh, a lot of needs. Um, it helped you understand how your know, two managers might use the same term, but it had slightly different implications. And prior to this, you, know, you had names in the industry that were very poetic, things like uh, Magellan or Windsor or Janus. Right. But you had to be an inside player to know that Janus was a growth-oriented investor and Windsor was value. You know, the ordinary investor couldn't know that they occupied different places in the portfolio and were actually complementary to each other, perhaps. So this is a tool that sort of empowered investors and helped them uh, make sense of a lot of different disparate information yeah. and, and sort of take control of it. Yeah, yeah. The same way the star rating did. You know, before that, you had fund companies choosing the time period um, and maybe even the methodology that was most favorable to them. Um, and you know, now all of a sudden, the investor had control right. over the information. Yep. So it was a big power shift, I think. The other piece that both of you touched on a little bit was just this notion of how investments were advertised and potentially the impact we had on changing the way people thought advertising should work so that it was, I think, more appropriately presented to the investor. But we also had our fair sort of share of um, run-ins, shall I say, with uh, uh, you know, folks on this side. And you had a famous incident yourself, uh, or infamous, depending on your perspective. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I, I wrote a commentary called Lies, Damned Lies, and Mutual Fund Advertisements. Um, and it's based on an advertisement that I just thought was very misleading. Um, it was a full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal. It usually went top to bottom. And it said, has anything like this ever happened before? And it had five boxes. And it had you know, number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. And in each of them, it had a name of one of these different funds from this fund group. And uh, the reality what, what happened, it, it acted like they had the top five funds. 
in the universe. But they had one fund that was number one in one category, another fund that had three share classes, which made it two, three, and four in a completely <laughs> separate category. And the, I think the fifth fund was even a closed-end fund. They had to go outside the, the U.S. or outside of the open-end universe to get this. So I, I wrote a commentary and pointed out that you know there isn't a quarter that goes by that Fidelity couldn't construct such an ad yeah, yeah. with uh, all of their sector funds. You know, if you could just said, okay, let's do you know healthcare funds or just you know these small little slices. Um, so anyway, the fund company didn't like it. Um, they sued me. It was a big thing in the, the industry. Um, but fortunately, you know, ultimately, we, we got it kicked out. of. Uh, the, finally, someone read it in the California Supreme Court. And they said uh, that the fund company pointed all these things they didn't like about the commentary, but they couldn't point to a single thing that wasn't true. And they said truth remains the ultimate uh, defense of libel. So... You know, it was a harrowing year, year and a half. I mean, it was a tough time, and they were suing us for much more than the company's revenues, and they were yeah. suing me personally on top of that. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was a fight that was worth fighting. Because uh, after this, they made a whole bunch of changes to uh, mutual fund advertising rules. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the different organiz regulatory organizations came in, and they, they, they helped clean that up a lot. Yeah, and yeah. so mutual fund advertising got, you know, much better. I mean, used to have... Uh, funds you know, advertised just on the basis of yield with no total return numbers. I mean, you talked about adding you know, risk to return, but sometimes they were sold just on the basis of yield yeah. Yeah. without talking about the risk or the potential erosion of capital that yeah, you yeah. might get. And some company, or some funds, you may remember, it would return capital to inflate their yield. Yeah, yeah. And then they would include that in the, the numbers that they advertised yeah. or went out and talked about. Yeah, so yeah. You know, the, the playing field has gotten a lot cleaner. And I think Morningstar was a, a, you know, a catalyst for some That's of those right. improvements. That's right. It's amazing how heavy-handed fund companies can be at times. I mean, we've had companies, as you both know, who've canceled contracts with us because they've not liked what our analyst group had yeah. read. But, uh, you know, I think we all take a lot of pride in knowing we've never wavered. And we'll take lawsuits. We'll take canceling contracts. Yeah. As long as we believe in what we're saying. You know, if we've made errors in our analysis, we'll correct them. But if not, we'll stand by it. Yeah. And I think, you know, Don and... Uh, team were very courageous in kind of fighting those fights for, for many years. You know, I see there's another uh, angle you could look at that is that the industry also in the long run has been quite responsive. Yeah. You know, they've addressed the concerns that we've raised and they've done things on the whole that are right for investors and we've seen improved behavior. So, um, the, the investor is much better off today than they were 10 or yeah. 20 years ago. The industry right? responded so, in a positive yeah. way and, and, and then investors got smarter largely because I think the independent advisors you know, were very demanding. They said, you know, treat us like institutions. We want better disclosure. We want to, to make good decisions on the, the part of our clients. And that improved behavior throughout yeah, yeah. the industry. You kind of got this virtuous circle going. Right. And again, we, weren't, we didn't single-handedly cause these, but I think we were, we were part of the trend and the catalyst uh, for many positive things. I think those things. fund company behaviors were more the exception than the rule. I mean, I think most part, fund executives got it. They liked what we were doing. They were supportive. I mean, the case that you just went through, you know, it was a bad actor, and that person was later expelled from the industry, yeah. correct? And, that person was the on the, the ICI's board of governors at yeah. the time, although someone later the told me. The Investment Company Institute. The Investment Company Institute, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, someone later told me, well, we did that just to kind of rein that person in. We wanted to, you know, it was better to keep an eye on her than to just let her go off and do whatever she's doing, so. It's like having Al Capone in prison so you can keep an eye on him or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joe, I get a lot of um, questions about one of the legacies you've left me, which is how we operate as a public company. <laughs> I have to Sorry say, about that. <laughs> I, I'm very thankful uh, about it, and I, I never get tired explaining about it. Why don't you talk about our whole process of coming public, 
why it was different and how we do things differently and why it's so important to who we are and how we think investors should engage with any company. Sure, no, I think we did something a little different there and it's uh, an interesting story. Um, so when we went public, um, first of all, we didn't have to go public. Uh, we had one outside investor, SoftBank of Japan. We had plenty of money in the bank, no debt, profitable. But SoftBank wanted to exit at one point, and so they had 20% of our shares. So when we went public, we just swapped SoftBank for the public. We didn't raise new capital. And so when we figured out how to, or decided to do that, the next step is how do you go public? And so we started with a traditional underwriter, Morgan Stanley, and doing a traditional, what's called book building process, the traditional IPO. But then in the middle of it, Google went public and they used this auction format. And that instantly appealed to us. You know, it really seemed to align with the ethos of Morningstar. It was about transparency, lower cost, equal access, because traditional IPO process, the so-called book building process, the IPO, the uh, underwriter typically allocates shares to their favorite clients. Mm -hmm. And if it's a so-called hot IPO, the small guy doesn't get any allocation. It's the big institutional investors. And that never really felt right to us. But once we came across the auction method, it really seemed, again, to fit perfectly with the values of Morningstar. So we went to Morgan Stanley and we said, we'll still use you as the underwriter, but we really want to use this auction format. And they said, no. <laughs> and they, here are 500 reasons why it's a bad idea. And they went to all the board members, talked to them all, but we stuck to our guns. We said, no, we really want to do the auction. Uh, method, and they said, well, if you really want to do that, we're not your underwriter. So we said, okay, you're not our underwriter. And we went to W.R. Hambrick out on the West Coast, who was the leader in auction IPOs, and they underwrote us. And uh, it worked out remarkably well. I mean, we still did a road show, Don and mm -hmm. our CFO, Martha Budis, at the time. The three of us spent two weeks traveling around the U.S. and probably 70, 80 meetings with all kinds of investors. Um, but you know, the interesting part is at the end, the pricing meeting, which is really you know, often a, a big debate and discussion about how to price the shares, took all of five minutes. Because in an auction, it's where supply meets demand. Yeah. So we wanted to sell seven and a half million shares. That's the supply. The demand curve goes like this. So at a low price, there's a lot of demand. At a high price, there's little demand. Where those two line meet, those two lines meet, that's the clearing price. So we wanted to price between 17 and 19. Those two lines met at $18.50 is where we could sell the 7.5 million shares. It took five minutes. We went to the slanted door, had a nice dinner in San Francisco <laughs> right after that. And so it all worked remarkably, remarkably well. There was no pop after the first day that you sometimes see, which indicates the offering was mispriced. And so it worked like a charm. If there was a pop, it would be mispriced. If there was a pop, I'm sorry, yeah. If there was a pop, it was mispriced. And then we was very efficient in that um, instead of charging 7%, which is what Morgan Stanley, it's a bit of a cartel, they mm -hmm. all charge 7%. We char they, uh, Hambrick charged us 2%. So we saved 5% on a $140 million offering. So that's $7 million. We saved SoftBank. Um, the irony is they wanted us to use Morgan Stanley to use the book building <laughs> process, but we kind of forced the, the auction, which they didn't really care for. But we saved them a lot of money. 
Uh, but we really wanted to help maybe get auctions off yeah. to a, you know, a good start, maybe see them proliferate, because we think it's a better way for investors. Yeah. Uh, this equal access, lower cost, a transparent pricing. And so that was the genesis of yeah. the, the, the auction format. And we don't do earnings estimates. We don't talk to analysts. Yeah, we take, as you know, we, we have a lot of um, different approaches to being a public company. Uh, but you're right, we don't do it forecasts or guidance. Um, we don't do conference calls. Uh, the idea is to keep the management team focused on building the business, creating great products, uh, staying close to our customers, not out catering to Wall Street, trooping around, meeting with institutional shareholders to the detriment of individuals who don't get that same information. Let's give everybody the same information. You can put a question in writing. We answer all the questions once a month, post it on our website. So equal access to information, uh, but keeps the overhead low on management. Right. I remember during the roadshow, there were a lot of money managers trying to get us to change those policies. I remember one in particular saying, well, my whole spiel to investors is that I really get to know company management really well, and I've got this inside track on what's happening. And he goes, you know, I can't tell them that with you because they can see that you only answer my questions the same as you do everyone else's. Um, and he would say, well, then because then I'm not going to buy your stock and trying to put pressure on us to change those policies. And I, I think that uh, you know, your leadership you know, saying, no, we're not going to do this. These are the terms that we're doing this was really important because you end up with the shareholder base that you deserve. Um, and I think you know, we've ended up with a terrific shareholder base of people that, you know, if they're paying attention, they can really get to know the company. Um, you know, Canal, your new shareholder letter really goes out and explains you know, the philosophy behind this. And that's what you want, are long-term partners in the business. That's right. I often tell other shareholders this very line about getting the shareholder base that you deserve based on the way that you engage with them. So I love the shareholder base that we have, and they've been with us for a long run. And the same thing's true in the fund industry. I remember yeah. John Templeton said those who get rich very quick are the same ones who get uh, poor very quick. Yeah. And you see that with fund companies, that they advertise on yield or short-term performance, you know, they attract the most fickle investors. And then as soon as the performance isn't hot, or you know, the yield sinks, yeah. you know, the investors flee. Yeah. And again, it's do you want to be in the business for short-term gains or for right. you know, long-term trends? I think a nice thing is our behavior internally did not change once we went public in 2005. The way we were before 2005 is the same after yeah. 2005. Yeah. Only life changed for our CFO, who <laughs> has to comply with all of the SEC guidelines and Sarbanes-Oxley. Other than that, I think it's like business as usual yeah. for everybody. But I remember we got a taste when we did this roadshow. I remember meeting with uh, Ron Barron and his team. They probably covered 5% of our business in an hour. They had so many questions. And this is one investor. And if you had to do this every quarter, and then as you say, they turn over the investors, it would take an unusually large amount of time yeah. to spend yeah, yeah. educating, you know, one-on-one -on -one investors versus doing it, you know, for everybody all at once. So it's been a very efficient thing, and um, so it's made being a public company a really a non-event. Yeah, 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 it's great. So one of the disappointments to me is that more people haven't followed. Um, with the, the auction process. Yeah. I mean, we, Google did it, we did it. There was a little bit of a, of a, of a trend, Google and us. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's, it's just such a good idea, and it'd be yes. wonderful to see uh, more companies embrace this and, and follow that. But I'm glad we did that. It's one of the things that I'm very proud of. Yeah. You know, I think the, the big underwriting firms are very skilled in talking people out of it. And our business is investing, so we understand it more than you know, an average company that's making bricks or whatever. You know, they, they trust a Goldman Sachs or whoever. You're the expert. Tell me what to do. I don't know Wall Street. Yeah. But since we're in the investment business, I think we can take a stand more so than most. That's right. 
I guess you know, we saw some of that when we were on the road show. I remember there were some IPO newsletters and stuff, and they were like industry insiders saying, oh, there's no interest in this deal. It's not going to come out. If it prices, it'll price way below the, the, you know, the, the, the range. And, you know, we, we, we knew that the book was building over the thing, and things were going just fine. Yeah. But you know, if you just read from the outside, these so-called experts were saying, you know, no, it was going to flop. And you realize that they were being fed that line by some of the traditional interests that didn't want to see you know, this thing work. That's very true. Well, Morningstar has primarily grown organically. Um, you describe it as sort of a bootstrap operation, and we've sort of just reinvested heavily uh, throughout the years. But we've also made a number of acquisitions that uh, have really been key to our growth. And can you talk about some of those that really stand out for you, Joe, that were transformative in Morningstar's history? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, we've been fortunate to have a, a very profitable business for many years, and we've chosen to take the bulk of those funds and reinvest them back into the business, either in terms of uh, opportunities we see for new product creation, uh, ideas that we have, or acquisitions. We've done a fair amount. And the acquisitions we've done, um, typically we know how to build product, create databases. So it's a build or buy decision. And if there's a capability, a company, a person, a team that's on the roadmap where we're going anyway, if we can buy that capability versus rebuilding it, uh, creating it de novo, um, <clears throat> You know, it would just it sped us up along the path we want to go to anyway. So when I look back on our history, you know, there are a couple that stand out. I think uh, when we acquired the S&P International Fund business, um, what used to be called the MicroPal business, uh, Standard & Poor's bought a company called MicroPal that was really what Morningstar and Lipper were in the U.S., outside the U.S. And we approached S&P about buying that. It was not on their focus area of ratings and indexes, and they agreed to sell it to us, and it really gave our international business a real boost, and it really increased the size and scale of that business, and that business went from really not making money internationally to being nicely profitable, and gave us scale, a lot of media relationships, so that when Canal, you worked, I know, on that integration, which was not easy, so yeah. thank you. Uh, <laughs> You know, that stands out. You know, I guess the other one I would mention, uh, I could mention a lot of them, would be Ibbotson. Mm -hmm. um, you know, really getting us further into the advice business, the managed account business. Right. But Ibbotson was a real leader in advice, asset allocation advice, principally. Yeah, yeah. That was Roger's core, Roger Ibbotson of, of Yale, uh, co core expertise. And so he had taken that knowledge, that expertise, and created investment consulting, an investment consulting business, as well as the managed account business. And those were two businesses that we brought in that increased the capabilities and size and scope of our institutional consulting right. uh, and management business, and then our burgeoning 401k management right. business. And then we also got some tremendous people. People like Tom and Zorick are still here. <clears throat> A lot of the former Ibbotson people are still here. So those two kind of stand out for me. Yeah, yeah. As you became CEO, Morningstar made its biggest acquisition ever, PitchBook, and you had been involved in that for some time. You'd been our board member at PitchBook. I think it's an incredibly gutsy move to make the biggest acquisition just as you're moving into the CEO role. My hat's off to you for having the courage to do that. But could you explain a little of the you know, that relationship and why that's worked so well for Morningstar? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things is a you know value investor that I sometimes have to check myself on is that. Uh, 
people never like to sell their businesses at value prices. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Don, the reality is like acquisitions are hard to do. Our own research, others' research show that they destroy a lot of value. And so I think we're all like students of that reality and, 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 and conservative um, appropriately when it comes to thinking about them. Um, and I particularly worry with acquisitions just about the impact on our culture. And so I often you know, think about like, if some firm was to come in to Morningstar, would the culture mesh? Mm -hmm. And I think there were two things that we all agreed upon with PitchBook. One was that the cultures were fantastic and would mesh well together. You know, John had built a really terrific organization, John Gabbert, and one could see exactly that it shared the values of Morningstar. And the other was, I think, just a simpler insight. You know, we're all investors. We all look and have portfolios, and we look at other investors' portfolios. You referenced looking at what your clients are doing, and the reality is more and more of our wealth management and asset management partners started to say they're investing in private equity and venture cap. And so when you look at x-raying an entire portfolio, not having that segment seemed like a miss on our part. And fast forward to today, and I think it's fair to say that it's kind of moved to the mainstream as in private equity and venture cap investing in probably a way that even we had not anticipated mm -hmm. three years ago. And so I think it's um, definitely the case of um, being thoughtful about where the investor portfolio is going and then being true to your own principles and culture as you bring another organization in. It's not always the case, but those are, I think, good guiding principles. You know, one of the things that's really excited me the last couple of years is what we've done around ESG and sustainability. It reminds me of the early days of Morningstar where we're really you know, changing behavior and yeah. people get excited about this and there's a passion and an energy and a, and a creativity to what we're doing yeah. uh, in this area. Uh, can you speak a little, uh, I think, Joe, you maybe were a catalyst for, for uh, starting this when you went to a, a, a conference that we hosted in Amsterdam. And didn't, I think yeah. you saw the, uh, some of the royalty of Amsterdam get up and, and talk about this and that it seemed like that uh, sort of was a catalyst for your enthusiastic uh, support of this. Yeah, I remember that conference, and uh, I spent some time with Queen uh, Maxima, I believe her name is, of, of the <laughs> Netherlands, uh, a really remarkable woman, but one of her passions was financial inclusion. Mm. And so how do you get people who don't even have bank accounts into the financial system? And uh, they've done some really remarkable work in Africa and just getting more people who, who can partake in the financial markets, whether it's just banking services or ideally becoming investors and getting more people to take advantage of that. And, uh, you know, that was a spark. Uh, you know, a lot of other people, Stephen Smith and others, have done a lot of phenomenal work. Uh, but the idea of people want to align their investments with their values. And, you know, do you want to invest in a tobacco company or an arms manufacturer or a company that's harming the environment in some way? You know, that's very important, especially to younger people. Mm -hmm. I sound like an old person, but they're important to me too. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, millennials especially want to invest al along with their values. And, uh, you know, it's a wonderful trend in that people are thinking like owners. Yeah. I'm not just delegating, but, you know, I'm owning a piece of a company. And do I want to be yeah. in this business? It's creating that owner mindset. And uh, it's really wonderful to see and, uh, you know, I know personally, I don't really want to own a tobacco company. You know, I wouldn't feel good about rooting that company on to sell, <laughs> you know, more cigarettes yeah. and getting more people to use tobacco products. And, uh, and so I totally understand that you want to invest according to your values and ask yourself, what business do you want to be in? You are an owner. 
And so it's a very powerful trend, and we're a unique spot to really bring some transparency and visibility to how your assets are invested, when otherwise it's very opaque to really understand a portfolio, what these companies do, how much exposure. And so I may have initially greenlit, you know, but there's a big team of people, and credit to Canal and everybody who's been involved in this effort, because it's just, I think, really resonated with advisors and their end investors in a very large way. It really seems to keep with the, sort of the themes we've been talking about at Morningstar about helping people make informed decisions. So you're not telling them what to do, but helping them yeah. you know, understand what they're doing and the impact. And, yeah. and Kunal, you've really made this, brought this right to the core of Morningstar and made this very central to what we're doing. Why, why have you done that? Why is that important to you? I think there's a few things. Like one, one, one thing maybe that we haven't talked a ton about is just the entrepreneurial spirit that we value within Morningstar. And part of the story is that a individual within Morningstar, Stephen Smith, really was the spark behind this and yep. kind of drove it. And you know, we love when individuals <laughs> or teams can just bring an idea and drive it because they have a passion for it and see things before others see it. So like I would say Stephen saw this in ways that everyone else in the organization is only now coming along and appreciating. And so that was- Did Buffett have like the one question job interview? Are you a fanatic? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stephen was a fanatic about he was, this. He still is a fanatic. Yeah. Um, but there's a couple other things that I'd sort of point to that I think are important. Joe told a story at the outset about risk being, you know, something that when Morningstar started was maybe not in the mainstream. Today, when you're building a portfolio, people don't even think about whether risk is incorporated or not because the assumption is that it is. And I think 10 years from now, ESG is going to be very similar in that it'll just become a natural part of the way a portfolio is built. Because I think we're entering this age of personalization where technology is enabling really anyone to build a portfolio in a manner that's unique and resonant with them. And particularly what I like about it is chapter 1.0 of this movement, which was called SRI, or Socially Responsible Investing, was all about exclusion. You don't like the gun manufacturers, so you can leave it out. You don't like a company that's polluting, so you could leave it out. You don't like a company that's doing something in healthcare, you could leave it out. But this, as an ESG, is all about inclusion. Like, what is your view of the future? As, and as an investor, how do you want to think about it? So our recently launched carbon indexes, for example, most people, when they first hear about them, assume it's about leaving out companies that, say, are polluting. But that's not really what it's about. It's simply about the fact that if you have a view that we are transitioning to a low carbon world, what are the companies best positioned to thrive in that world? And guess what? That includes companies in the oil patch. So it's really about inclusion and reflecting views and, and trying to make a portfolio more personal, more resonant, and hopefully uh, one that leads to outperformance because of a view that you have. So it's, it's sort of a form of active management uh, if you think about it in that way. Mm -hmm. It's great that we're giving this information to investors, but sometimes we, um, as you mentioned earlier, uh, we step on some toes and upset some people. Yeah. And we had an issue recently. Uh, we do a, a, a global fund investor experience, sort of you know, grade what's the, uh, the the situation like in different countries yeah. around the world for investors. And we gave a poor mark to the Indian fund industry in terms of their expenses, which caused a, a bit of a uh, of a uh, of a rebellion in uh, that market. In fact, uh, a number of fund managers trying to or threatening to boycott our, our conference. Uh, you were there for that conference. Yep. And what, what was that, that situation like? And yeah. what's it like being the CEO of the company when you have to defend, uh, defend your analyst? Right. Um, well, I think it's easy to 
defend our values. I think that's very clear. And I think we've always said when you go into business with us, you're going into business with our values. And so I think that's clear and obvious. Um, I do think, though, that as we grow in other parts of the world where the investing culture is more nascent, where investors maybe have not had the victories that they've had uh, here in the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, those chapters are being written. And you know, I still remember the day I got the call from the head of our business in India. And candidly, I think he was nervous because sure. they had never experienced anything like this. And in the social media age, it kind of became personal, right? So there were formal attacks over social media, personally at him and others on our team. Mm -hmm. And I still remember saying, well, it's really fine. You should stand your ground. And I think like just those simple words gave them a lot of confidence. Because just as you said, my first question was, is the data correct? Right, right. And the answer was, absolutely. Well, if the data's correct, then stand your ground. And uh, it was hard. And even when I went to India with Jeff Patak, who leads our uh, manager research, you know, we met with folks who were upset. Uh, we heard them out. But nobody ever said, just like in your example, that, the, that what you're saying is factually incorrect or untrue. And the beauty of it was financial advisors uh, showed up in droves. And so we had our largest conference yeah. in India last year. Yeah. And as if for further validation, uh, fees in India are actually um, a little bit more regulated than they are in other parts of the world. And so the regulator in India essentially caused everyone to, pu to push their fees down as a result of our report. And so uh, I'd say that there's still some hurt feelings. And I think that's the nature of it. But the investor won. And that's where we want to be. It's interesting when you get whole organizations sort of you know, clamoring together and working against you. We've had similar situations yeah, in New yeah. Zealand and Canada. Um, one of the things that, you know, the question I remember posing to, to one of those entities was, are, are you defending your industry's worst qualities or are you advancing their best ones? Yeah, yeah. And uh, this woman <laughs> said, you know, why? When you put it that way, I kind of look at it a little differently. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, and sometimes the reality is it takes longer to win when you're independent, when you take a pro-investor view. It's easy to cut corners and try to be short-term profit-minded. But I think even around the world, it's not just organizations at Morningstar that have won in, in, in our business. It's firms that have generally done the right thing, right? And if you look at the firms that you admire around the world in our business, it, it maybe took them longer to get to where they are, but they get to a place where people understand their value and then they just take off. And so it's, it's you know, no wonder that some of the last, largest asset managers today are the ones that had lower fees, a long-term view of things, great disclosure practices. They've won, and I think that that's a good lesson. Ultimately, if the investor doesn't win. Yeah, so transparency wins. wins. Yeah. Even though that was very difficult in India, I would suspect that that'll go a very long way in building our brand and reputation in India. Yeah, yeah. Once you take a hard stand like that, and advisors, investors, individuals see us taking all that fire, yeah. and we're sticking to our guns, it builds such credibility and such trust. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's how we've built trust over 35 years is those kinds of situations. Yeah, yeah. And it's not done for that purpose. Yeah. <laughs> it's done right. to do the right thing. Yep. But I think the end result is it creates this unusually strong brand and reputation, integrity. And in this age where people compromise all over the place that's right. in life, that's right. it just stands apart that's right. in a very shining example kind of way. That's right. So credit to you for making that stand. Yeah, it's about gaining respect, not about uh, winning friendship you yeah. know, or, or you know, cooperation, near-term cooperation. It's you know, are you, in the long term, earning the respect of the people that you're doing business with? And one of the things that, that I remember, a number of fund firms that we had issues with in the early days, they didn't like things that we wrote. Um, 
as some of these executives started having kids going to college and then graduating from college, they started recommending them for, to work at Morningstar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they'd say, you know, well, you know, they'd call me up and say, hey, Don, you know, my, my daughter, she's, she's real idealist and she's really super smart and uh, I couldn't think of a better place for her to be than Morningstar. I'm yeah. like, well, you used to hate us. You used to you know, call me up and tell me how wrong we were about all these issues. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But for my daughter, I want the best. So yeah, yeah. that was one of the things where you knew we'd kind of uh, it's earned true. some respect. It's true. And we have a lot of fights still on our hands on, on, on behalf of investors. You know, the big one that I think about now, I, I think in many ways on in investment data, we've come a long way, but I think investor data is the next big frontier because we're all today awash in data and yep. we're all sharing lots of data. And so different firms have loads of access to investor data, to financial transactions and how firms you know, deal with that data is going to be very important. So we've taken a very strong stand on privacy that we're only going to share data that the investor or the advisor has asked us to share and that the investor is the owner of their own data. Mm -hmm. Whereas other firms are choosing to monetize this data in ways that I think ultimately uh, most people are going to say they're uncomfortable with. And so I think the next generation of transparency is really going to extend to personal data and how uh, th that's actually ultimately used to help investors. And I'm not sure that most firms in the space are actually thinking about helping investors per se as opposed to finding a path to profitability. I like that. That's the other side of the coin of sort of investors' rights. For yeah. a long time, we've talked about investors' right to know certain things about their investments, but this is also the investors' right to protect certain things yeah. about their own information. Yes, exactly. That's very analogous to the trouble Facebook got into, yeah. taking people's data. Yeah. They thought it was entrusted to Facebook, and here they sell it and expose very private, private information. And I think having that same high ground, That's let's right. say maybe Apple is doing, you know, in, in the tech sphere, in our sphere of really protecting people's rights is the That's absolute right. right thing to do. That's right. And I feel really good, and I think that just really jives with the ethos of Morningstar. Goes back to that long-term view of the sun being but a morning star. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah, right. it does. Um, so last year we took a big step. We launched our own family of mutual funds, yeah. which I believe surprised many people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, is it the, the referee becoming the player? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you wouldn't think a raider of funds would have its own family of funds. Um, I know we have very good reasons for doing that, but do you want to talk about that? I think it did surprise some people. Yeah. And why would we launch our own family of funds? Well, I, I think... Uh, Probably the untold part of that story is it took us a decade <laughs> to figure out exactly how to do it because we certainly wanted to take it very seriously. And so it's been a long uh, and I think thoughtful path there. And I think it actually mirrors the way financial advisors have changed the way they work with us. Because there used to be a time where financial advisors solely wanted to build portfolios themselves. And we wanted to help them do that. And so it was our data, our software, our research that help them build portfolios. But as advisors have grown larger, gotten more clients, are managing more money, doing more activities for clients, they've increasingly asked to start to outsource uh, the investment management piece. And so when we first got into investment management, I think around 2001 or so, in terms of building portfolios for advisors, uh, we essentially started to use third-party funds. As our offering has grown, though, we've wanted to obviously lower the costs and one of the challenges when you're using third-party funds is that there are a lot of embedded expenses in there related to distribution costs, for example, yeah. 
that we just don't use and take advantage of. So essentially, investors in our portfolios were paying a tax that they didn't need. And the way to eliminate that was to simply move that layer away. So we've launched our funds essentially to lower costs, and that's exactly what's happened by you know, a meaningful amount. And I'm really proud of what we've done because we've done it with a really independent board. More than 75% of the board is independent. Uh, our chairperson is independent. Uh, if you look at the disclosures, they are as good as any. We actually explain what custodial fees are and what we're paying there, which uh, may sound a little esoteric, but surprisingly it's es esoteric, which is why people don't disclose it, but it's meaningful. And, and we've gone even further in terms of uh, disclosing how we use people's data and even sent a notice recently uh, to all investors explaining um, how their data is used and, and our privacy standards. So we're going to do this in a way that embodies our values and uh, embodies the way that we think um, funds should be built the right way. And uh, we've got a lot of inspiration both from our values and the ways others have done it. Uh, and so I, I think um, we're going to really make a lot of advisors and their clients very happy. So these funds power managed portfolios, right. they lower the cost, but we don't sell these funds outside of managed portfolios. We don't. We, we, we think um, they're best presented in a portfolio, so as opposed to selling them on a standalone basis. We're really trying to think about invest, investing on behalf of others in a goal-based, outcome-based way. And so one of our specialties, you referenced Ibbotson, the roots of all of that is around portfolio building, asset allocation, and that's another one of our strengths beyond sort of manager selection in and of itself. I think that kind of like the next phase of Morningstar. I mean, when Morningstar started, people bought bad funds. I mean, John Reckenthaler's done some research into this, but money was almost as likely to go into a very expensive fund as an inexpensive fund or one with mediocre performance or uh, you know, versus good performance. And today that's not the case at all. You know, almost all of the money goes into the least expensive funds and the better performing funds. And so I think that's one of the things that Morningstar shining a light on this industry has helped do is that you know, money doesn't go to bad funds anymore. But people still assemble poor portfolios. You know, they buy what they wish they'd bought three years ago and they end up with portfolios that don't really have the diversification, that aren't forward-looking. And so to me, that's the, the cutting edge and yeah. so where Morningstar is going is how can you help advisors and help uh, clients you know, get into portfolios that, that better meet their goals and that's objectives? Right. People have the right intentions, yeah. but they're not getting the right outcomes. And we want to make sure that that last mile is as successful as the journey to it. So we've already talked a bit about PitchBook, yeah, yeah. big acquisition for us. Do you want to talk more generally about the convergence of public and private markets. Companies obviously are staying private much yeah, longer. Yeah. Uber, well, it's about to go public, but Airbnb, there's a whole host of unicorns. And staying private isn't, doesn't have the same maybe stigma for some venture-backed companies that it, it had yeah, yeah. a long time ago. And they're seeing more and more benefits to staying private. Yeah. Um, and so now we're covering both private, public, they're coming together. You want to talk a little about sure. that? One of the benefits being that they can get a better valuation in the private markets, <laughs> as recent examples have shown. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I, I think the reality is that capital is arriving in the U.S. in particular in different ways and from different sources. And it has given rise to an age of fantastic innovation. And much of that innovation has taken place in the private world where you have companies building businesses overnight almost, it seems, and they become household names in ways that we have not seen before. Those are the headlines. But I also think that there's a story that a lot of public companies are often being taken private 
so that they can be retooled, mm. made stronger, perhaps be run more efficiently, and then being bought public again. And so I think that line is kind of blurred between what's a public company and what's a private company. And if you're an investor, used to be you might be able to open up a Morningstar report and you could look at 15 years of history and kind of see what had happened um, you know, to a company uh, over that time. I know, I know that's how Joe spent his weekends. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and in some ways, it's harder to tell that story now because companies have different life cycles that they go through. And one of the things I hope we're going to be able to do is actually connect that. And oh. if you've seen some of our recent research on some of the companies coming public, say, in the ride-sharing uh, space, we're starting to do that and tell this comprehensive story. And who knows, a company may be private, it may go public, and it may go private again and mm -hmm. have many avatars in that way. And I, I, I want to make sure Morningstar can position the investor for, for success by telling the investor that full story. Otherwise, the picture is incomplete. And so in my mind, we're shining a light uh, and kind of making that path uh, clearer. And I would just say, Joe, that as much as we've you know, put a bright light on the public markets and successfully done that, we're only starting our work now on the private side and starting to look into how companies are built, how they're funded, how returns are reported. Uh, it's an unregulated space. No one's really rocked the boat there. And I think we're definitely going to be very thoughtful about making sure that investors are winning in that space as well. That's yeah, pretty cool. Right now, we can track the whole life cycle of a company. Yeah. From the seed round, angel investing, yeah. venture-backed, IPO, public, and then as you say, maybe back to private yeah. again, back to public. <laughs> we have that whole arc. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know anyone who's doing it yeah. in, in a fundamental research way like That's we right. are. That's right. So. And even if there are times when you can't invest in that company, it has an impact on its industry and the other players that are in that. So Correct. if you want to be an informed investor, you really need to know what's happening you know, behind the doors sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to think about you know, autonomous cars and the impact on Ford and Fiat Chrysler mm -hmm. and GM, you're going to look at the private set. Yeah. So not just Tesla. That's great. It's brought a whole new audience to Morningstar. The people who invest in that right. are typically not the audience we've addressed. That's right. So it brings a whole separate sphere of investors into the fold, That's which right. is great. That's right. All right. Well, thank you both uh, for joining uh, me today. I, I never get tired of listening to both of you. I, I think so much of an organization's history and the stories are so critical to its future. And so I think we should all be memorializing all the good things we've done and take inspiration from them because they have such a big part in our future as well. So thank you both. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, One of our favorite topics to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Let's not do this in 35 years again. Let's do it sooner. <laughs> Anytime. This podcast is brought to you by Oppenheimer Funds. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends is a podcast from Oppenheimer Funds that explores the trends reshaping the global economy. Subscribe to Megatrends wherever you listen. Okay, can you read that one more time? I'm trying to think of how to describe this. Let me just, let me think about that. Okay, go, ask me again. Empower means giving people the liberty and support to accomplish a task. I think someone's empowered is when they feel confident, you know, that what they're doing is right for them. When I think about empowering investors, it's what Morningstar has done really well. Take something that was somewhat nebulous, like the financial industry, make it transparent. There is nothing more empowering than having knowledge to back your decisions.
Empower to me means that we're giving the people the resources, the insights, the knowledge, and the support that they need to get the job done. We think of empowering as how we empower investors with the confidence to make their best investment decisions. This means meeting people where they're at on their own personal journey and developing unique solutions that make sense for those sets of circumstances. Investor means someone who is trying to build a financial future for themselves and their family. Investor to me means institutional or retail investor trying to better themselves or do better in their financial situation. So I think of investor as everybody. We're all investors, right? Whether it's a 401k plan, whether it's a 529, we all invest every day and money plays a part in all of our lives. When people hear that I work at Morningstar, I think they think I work with investments, just like numbers on a sheet of paper. And I don't think of it that way at all. I think I work with and for investors and helping the professionals who serve investors achieve real-life goals. So it's the usual stuff like retirement or sending kids to college or buying houses, but it's also just sleeping easily at night and taking great vacations, all the things that constitute quality of life for all of us. But I'm starting to cry. <laughs> Success to me is, it's a bit in the eye of the beholder. Um, it's whatever you find fulfilling and rewarding. It's um, reaching aspirations that you have set for yourself. My definition of success is achieving your goals. I think the interesting definition I take on success is, does where my money go reflect my values? Fulfilling our goals, chasing our dreams, aiming high. So for all of us here at Morningstar, at the end of the day, when you reach your goals, when you get to the outcomes that you're hoping for, we know that you've won and that our work has meant something to you. And so we're going to continue down the path of empowering investor success because we know when you're successful, then so too are we. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar.com. We hope you've enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's new podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today.